This audio is from the Axis Church and is a part of our sermon series, In the Shadows, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. For more information about Jesus or the Axis Vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's great to be with you again this morning. Um, to open up God's Word. This morning we are continuing uh, this, our series that we've entitled In the Shadows, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament. And so this is our sixth week. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, um, chapter 37. That's where we're going to be starting out. We're going to be um, looking at various texts through Genesis 37 through 50. And so some of the story that I'm going to summarize and some of it we're going to read. Um, I didn't think it was probably a good idea to read 14 chapters of the book of Genesis to start. So um, as you're turning to Genesis 37, I wanted to let you know that on November 13th, there's going to be a baptism Sunday. And so if you have any interest or feel like you may need to be baptized, there is a sign up sheet in the lobby. And so please fill that out. Um, we would love to talk to you about what it means to be baptized and possibly baptize you that Sunday. And if you're just a regular attender and faithful partner at, at the Axis, definitely encourage you to be here for that. November 13th, it's such an encouraging time to see the Lord continuing to build his church and as evidence through baptism. So please be there for that. As we begin today, since we're in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, I think we need to start, as we have in past weeks, with how we are to read and understand the Old Testament in general. It's helpful to know that the Bible is written with a trajectory in mind, a storyline in mind. And so an easy way to remember the trajectory or this, this grand story that is being told in the scriptures is by these four words, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. And it's helpful as you come to any text to kind of figure out and think about where you are in the story. The Bible is one seamless book, one story written about God's plan to redeem and rescue a people for himself. And so this means that even in the Old Testament, we get pictures or glimpses, we get types or tastes of this coming Redeemer who is coming to make all things right again. And so part of what that means is that the stories in the Old Testament aren't merely or primarily there for us to find heroes to imitate or heroes to admire. They're ultimately there to foreshadow and point us forward to the greater hero, the true hero who is Christ, who lived and acted for us. And so today we're going to be looking at Jesus we're going to be thinking about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And we're going to see how this is foreshadowed through the story of Joseph. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help to see Christ this morning and to see him more clearly than hopefully we have before we came here today. So let's pray. Father, we confess our dependency upon you. We confess that we need you. We confess that we come as a broken people, unable to see what we should see in your word. We come here unable to obey what we should obey 
from your word. And without your grace, it's going to be impossible for us to do those things. And so we ask that you would help us, Lord. We depend on you. We, we want to see Jesus for who he actually says he is, for who your word says he is. So would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears to hear and to see Christ this morning? Lord, we know that if you do this, we will be changed. It's impossible to see Jesus for who he really is and not be changed. And so we ask that you would help us, Lord. We trust that your son will be glorified and that we will be different as a result of, of the word being preached and us hearing and obeying your word this morning. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since the Bible is one story and context to that matter, to that story matters, it's helpful for us to remember kind of where we are in the story in the book of Genesis even. And so think about the book of Genesis with me just for a second here. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he creates the world. He creates mankind in his own image. He created Adam and Eve, and he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. He gives them duties and responsibilities to take place and to fulfill, which was to multiply, to fill the earth, and to rule over creation. And yet in Genesis chapter three, we very quickly see that Adam and Eve wanted to do their own thing. And so they rebelled against God's good, good purposes. And what we find is that now sin is in the world. And as a result of sin, there is brokenness and death and conflict and things are no longer the way they're supposed to be. Sin becomes so rampant that as the people multiply, then in Genesis six, God sends a flood to wipe out humanity sinful humanity who's rebelling against him, but he shows grace to Noah and to his family. We looked at that a few weeks ago. In Genesis chapter 12, we see that God chooses Abraham, this pagan man from a pagan nation. And he tells them this in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God promises a land to the people of God. He promises a, that they are going to be a great nation. And that all the families, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abram's offspring and descendants. The problem was that they didn't have a descendant at this point. They didn't have any offspring. And so finally, after years of barrenness and infertility, God graciously and sovereignly gives them a child in their old age named Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob, who is also called Israel, as we'll see this morning. And Jacob, Israel, he has 12 sons, which came to be the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's interesting because the promise to Abraham is repeated to both Isaac and to Jacob. They're continuing the line. They're continuing the offspring. They are the people of God. God's continuing his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. 
And so he's promised them a land. He's promised them that they will be a great nation, that he's going to multiply them. And with God's, or with Jacob's 12 sons, you begin to see God to fulfill that, to multiply the people of God. And so we pick up in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. Now Israel, Jacob, he loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his own old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Jacob has these 12 sons. Joseph is the second youngest son. He later has another son named Benjamin. And essentially Joseph is his favorite. And again, you already see that Jacob here is not set forth in the Old Testament as this example to be followed. Like he's, that's not the point of the text. It's not good parenting. And so to make matters worse, though, Joseph, who's 17 at this point, he has these dreams. And in the book of Genesis, it's, it's helpful to know that dreams are often and typically associated with divine revelation from God. So God speaks to his people at this point through dream, through dreams. And so Joseph has these dreams and he doesn't keep them to himself. May have been a good idea, maybe not. But he tells his brothers that he has a dream that they're going to bow down to him, that he's going to rule over his brothers and even his father. And so all of this was very offensive to his brothers and to his father, especially And it caused them to even hate him more. The text says that they were jealous of Joseph. And so the day came when they would have a chance, essentially, to take out their vengeance on their little brother. So Joseph's family, they were a shepherd family. And so his brothers are out in the field, keeping watch over the flock. And Jacob sends Joseph to go check in on the brothers. So he's going out in the field, and as he's coming towards them, Verse 18 in chapter 37 says, they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now, Reuben in the story is the oldest brother. And he essentially talks his other brothers out of killing Joseph. And so they throw him into this empty pit for the time being. And while Reuben is away, the brothers essentially devise another plan. And so they pull Joseph out of the pit. They strip him of his robe. And there just happened to be some slave traders passing by. And so they sell Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And the slave traders, they take him to Egypt, which is about 200 miles away from his homeland. And the the brothers, they dip his coat of many colors in this animal blood. They take it back to his father. Say, look, this is what we found. Apparently Joseph is dead. And so Joseph is sold into slavery and thought to be dead. And they surely believed that this would be the end of this dreamer named Joseph. So Joseph's outside of his land in slavery. He's supposed to be part of the people of God. And now he's thought to be dead. 
But verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And what we find in the story is that Joseph quickly gains favor and influence in the house of Potiphar, who is this high ruling official in Egypt. And so Joseph becomes the captain of the house and he's put in charge over everything in Potiphar's house. And as Joseph faithfully serves in Egypt, in the house of Potiphar, Potiphar essentially had a sleazy wife who tried to continually, while her husband was away, seduce Joseph. And Joseph continually, over and over, he's faithful. He says, how could I sin against God in this way? He's faithful to Potiphar, and he runs away from Potiphar's wife. But eventually, she catches him one day in the house by himself, tries to seduce him, grabs his garment as he's running out the door from this woman. And then she tells her husband that he tried to rape her. It's interesting that this brother keeps losing his clothes to people and they keep using it as a tool of deception. (laughs) And so naturally Potiphar, he believes his wife and he puts Joseph back in prison even though he had done absolutely nothing wrong. And in fact, he was actually being faithful to Potiphar. And so after two whole years in prison, Joseph became known again as this faithful man who could also interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he was told that this man Joseph could possibly interpret his dream. And so he sent for and he calls for Joseph and he brings him in. And he tells Joseph his dreams and Joseph interprets the dream for him. And he says that God is saying that there is a coming famine to the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh is so pleased by Joseph's wisdom and leadership skills that he takes him out of prison. And then he, he says to him, you shall be over my house and over all my people. And you shall order them. They shall order themselves as you command only as regards the throne. Will I be greater than you? And again, it's helpful to understand that Egypt at this point is basically the most powerful nation in the known world. And so Joseph is now a second in command in Egypt. And just as Joseph said, the the famine comes. There's seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And this famine comes to Egypt and all the surrounding lands But Joseph had led them to store up huge amounts of grain that the text says couldn't even be numbered or counted. Now back home, Joseph's family begins to run out of food because the famine is there as well. And so as we're reading the story, it's, we have to understand that the issue here is whether the people of God are going to continue, whether the promises of God are going to be fulfilled or not. It's hard to be a great nation when you die of starvation from the famine. So how, how will the people of God continue? Well, they hear that there's food in Egypt. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt. And so they travel there and they come and they bow down before this new ruler over all of Egypt, Joseph about 22 years after they had sold him into slavery. And so naturally, they don't really recognize Joseph, though Joseph, the text says, recognizes them. 
so he speaks harshly to them. He treats them in a way that doesn't feel like there's very much grace being shown. And through a series of like tests and strategic conversations and events, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers and they are stunned. They are dismayed, the text says. They tried to get rid of this dreamer and in getting rid of him, they actually fulfilled his dreams. The brothers are bowing down to Joseph. But Joseph graciously brings them back to Egypt and provides for them during the famine, thereby saving their lives. Now, back in Genesis chapter 15, it says that the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment, the Lord says, on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And so the nation that is prophesied here that their people of God are going to serve for 400 years is Egypt. And so we read about this in the great Exodus. And we're going to talk about these, this great deliverance of the people of God in the book of Exodus in the coming weeks. But the story of Joseph, chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis, is partly here to tell us how in the world did the people of God who have been promised the land, who have been promised that you're going to be a great nation, how do they end up serving a foreign nation, Egypt, as slaves for so long? And at one level, it's Sort of clear, isn't it? They, they got there by means of Joseph's brothers sinning against him, of selling him into slavery, of trying to kill him and deceiving their father. So that's in one level how they end up in Egypt. But how does the Bible interpret this story for us and thereby point us to the gospel? I think the way the Bible interprets these events is that God was sovereignly working out his purposes in these events. And he was doing it according to his timetable. In the story, I want us to see that the apparent hiddenness of God does not indicate the uncaring absence of God. In the moments when God seems absent, he is working redemption and deliverance for his people. Joseph was the recipient of God's favoring presence, even as he unjustly suffered. And in fact, the Lord was with him through every bit of his suffering. So notice these texts. While Joseph was in Potiphar's house at the beginning of his Egyptian slavery, Genesis 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. After Joseph is thrown back into prison because Potiphar's wife lied, says, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him 
And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. When he's brought before Pharaoh, Joseph continues to acknowledge God's presence with him. Genesis 41, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. But Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then he tells him of the coming famine. And so in all that Joseph experienced, we know that the Lord was with him, giving him the wisdom needed to navigate the trials and the suffering that God had placed him in the midst of. When God seemed absent, he was actually near to Joseph. In fact, he was actively working out his purposes in Joseph's life. Listen to this account of when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. Listen for how God is active and not absent in this story. Joseph said to his brothers, he sends all his people out and he's just with his brothers. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I feel like at that point they know this is, this is our little brother, Joseph. What in the world? And now he says, do not be distressed though, or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in these land in this land, the two, these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And so just in case you didn't catch, so verse eight, it is not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God sent Joseph to Egypt. God made him ruler over Pharaoh or over Egypt and all right under Pharaoh as second in command, essentially. And so while his brothers were sinning, God was actively orchestrating the preservation of his people and the fulfillment of his promises. And it was happening through Joseph's adversity. While Joseph was outside of the promised land, God was with him, ensuring that he would have favor granting him new mercies each day to, to live and to do what the Lord had placed him there to do. And so Joseph's suffering, his trials, his rejection, all of this was a crucial part of the deliverance that God had promised to his people. So friends, the, the suffering that you're faced with now, the trials that you're enduring the rejection that you're experiencing, the fears that you have, these may be the very things that God is using to bring salvation 
These may be the very things that God is using to actually save you from yourself. Family, you can be sure that God is working out his good purposes for you. In fact, the adversity of our life often softens us to the grace that he is wanting to show us in the midst of our suffering and in our weakness. When their father had died, Joseph's brothers sort of came to a place where they assumed that Joseph might want to take vengeance out on them for the evil that they had done to him. But listen how God's sovereign care over Joseph's life, how that informs his perspective on being sinned against. Genesis chapter 50, they, the brothers come and they ask for forgiveness because their father has died and his brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The evil actions of the brothers came to be part of the fulfillment of God's revelation to Joseph. Ultimately, what the brothers designed for evil against him, God designed for good. In the same way that they were meaning evil, God was meaning good for Joseph and for the people of God, ultimately. John Piper says regarding this text, notice it does not say that God used their evil for good after they meant it for evil. I want to say that again. Notice it does not say that God used their evil for good after they meant it for evil. It says that in the very act of evil, there were two different designs. In the sinful act, they were designing evil. And in the same sinful act, God was designing good. Friends, all, all things. Because we don't believe this, like, say this out loud. All things. Literally all things, including the evil actions of godless men, are under the wise governing hand of a gracious God who is intending good, final, ultimate good for his people. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. And, and don't be fooled. God is always steps ahead of those who intend to harm the people of God. And what this does, among other things, is frees you to love those who hurt you. It frees you to even love your enemies. It frees you to lay down your rights of needing to be justified or to take vengeance it frees you to tr entrust yourself to the all-encompassing care of God. Behind every purpose of man stands the bigger purpose of God. And God is always bringing about his purposes for his people. 
Ephesians 1 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And so where in this story is the gospel? Where do we see the gospel coming forth, foreshadowed? There is no greater place in the scripture where we see God accomplishing his good purposes through the evil actions of men than in the death of Christ. You see, Joseph's brothers, they sinned against him and he suffered for it. And in his suffering, God was sending Joseph, the text says, to Egypt to save many lives, including the lives of the people of God from famine. And so the nations, it says, all the earth were coming to Joseph and he was giving them life during this time. In a very similar way, Jesus came, but Jesus came sent, but he came willingly and he was rejected and he was also not recognized by his own people. And he was sinned against. He was suffering because of that. And yet God was working out his plan. He was working out the salvation of his people through the suffering of Christ. And so the suffering and the trials and the rejection of Christ was actually a crucial part of the ultimate deliverance that God had already promised for his people. In the story of Joseph, we see a man of faithfulness and constancy and righteousness even. He's literally running from temptation. And even when he doesn't deserve to be where he is, he faithfully serves those who are around him in the roles that God had placed him in. And though his faithfulness is at times rewarded, he often serves faithfully only to be unjustly treated. And yet in the end, the end of the book of Genesis, we see Joseph being vindicated, right? In Christ, we see a man who is rejected and betrayed and put to death by the very ones he came to save. And we see his perfection and his righteousness as he endures being sinned against, yet never sinning himself. And Jesus is vindicated when he is raised from the grave in victory over Satan's sin and death. Jesus is the ultimate and only righteous one. I mean, if Joseph is amazing in his faithfulness as he suffers, how much more amazing is Jesus who suffers perfectly? never sinning. He was perfectly steadfast and righteous through all of his suffering. And in the death of Christ, we see wicked, sinful, evil men conspiring against Jesus to betray him and to kill him. And the only perfect son of God who never deserved a single ounce of suffering, and yet he suffered more than any man will ever know. And all of this was according to God's design. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In Acts chapter 4, when the people of God are suffering for preaching this gospel, and they're praying for boldness, and they pray this in Acts chapter 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. 
All of these people gather together against Christ to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus' death was not an accident. It was not plan B. It was the most heinous and evil act in all of history because the one who was being murdered was the most undeserving of death. In fact, he, perf- he was perfectly righteous and he bore willingly our sin. And he bore the wrath and the judgment that we deserve. And he died in order to give us life, in order to give us peace, in order to deliver us ultimately from the enemy. And friends, though we have sinned and though we have rejected and betrayed Christ over and over and over because of his sacrifice, because of his suffering, we can hear this morning, do not, do not be afraid. What you intended for evil, my father intended for good to accomplish the saving of many people, including you. So Jesus, Hebrews says, is he is not ashamed to call us brothers and the family of God. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived perfectly. He died at the hands of wicked and evil men, and he was vindicated and exalted by his father when he was raised to life. You see, Joseph was vindicated, but then he died and he was buried. They literally carried Joseph's bones to the promised land when they went. But Jesus died and was buried and he was raised and exalted and even now lives and is interceding for us. And all of this, all of the work of Christ, all of his suffering and unjust treatment, all of this was fulfilling the plan and the covenant of God with his people. People from all over the earth, it says, came to seek out Joseph because he had the very thing. He held in his power the very thing that would give them life at that point during this famine. But Jesus is the true and better Joseph who reigns and rules not just over Egypt. He reigns and rules over all nations. And he himself is the blessing to all the nations. And he himself is the true and everlasting life. Because the gospel is true and because we who believe this gospel and we trust Jesus, we have an everlasting hope. We have a living hope this morning. And the apostle Paul knew this truth. This is why he wrote in Romans chapter eight. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know, family, if you trust Jesus, we all know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up willingly, freely, graciously for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
if he's given us his son, how would he not give us everything else that we need for life and salvation? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who declares us righteous. Who is to condemn then? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is exalted at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? What about famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, not on the outside of them, not once we get past them, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present right now, nor things to come in the future, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Family, Jesus is Lord. And he lived perfectly and gave himself up for us willingly for our salvation and for our deliverance. And he is even now working out his purposes to save a people for himself. That is our hope. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why we leave here with hope. And so each week we come together as the people of God to remember these things. Because on Wednesday morning, you're going to forget. On Monday morning, you're going to forget. This afternoon, you're going to forget and so we come to rehearse these truths over and over and over because it is our hope. It's what gives us life. And so one of the ways that we do this every single week is by taking communion, by taking the Lord's Supper. And as we partake of this meal, we come and we are visibly and physically reminded by the, the, the wine and the bread that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're reminded that, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We're reminded that he saved us and is continuing to save us and hold us fast. And we are reminded that we will one day be brought to glory to an eternal land in which we will worship before him forever. So as we come this morning, we're going to have servers on both sides and station in the back. And as you come, we will take a broken piece of the bread, which represents the body of Jesus that is broken for us. And we'll dip it in the juice of the wine, which represents the blood of Christ that has been poured out on our behalf for our forgiveness and for our cleansing. And as we come, we remember Christ. We remember Jesus who has given himself for us who has loved us. 
And this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, we ask that you not partake of this meal, but we ask that and encourage you and invite you to trust Christ, to turn away from your sin, to trust Christ as your only hope. Family, let us pray, let us prepare for communion this morning as we partake together as family. Lord, it is astonishing to us, as it should be, that you love us, that you have freely and graciously given up your only son because of your love for us. Lord, we have hope because of Christ and because of nothing else. So Father, I pray that you would build up and encourage Convict us where we need it. Show us the areas of our heart where we are not submitting to you. Father, show us where we need to trust you more. Would you help us to do that this morning? As we partake in communion together, Lord, would you build our faith? Would you hold us fast? Would you abide with us as we abide with you this morning. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you reign supremely over our lives. And may we, wherever we are this morning, may we trust you. May we see your gracious governing hand over all things in our lives. And Lord, give you the honor and the glory that is due your name because of what Christ has done on our behalf and how you love us and guide us. Lord, thank you for the cross. We pray that we would remember Christ even now. We pray this in his name. Amen.